welcome to this week's episode of Swig of Intellect. I'm Patrick DeButler, and I'm here with Lisa Gray. Hello, Patrick. How are you? Hello, Lisa. I'm very well. How are you? I'm very well. Listeners, thanks again for joining us for a Swig of Intellect, your conversation companion. We'll share the news you need to know, give you insights into the media sources, that you should be following and share a couple of shots of culture, ensuring that you have something else to talk about besides ah, 2020. <laughs> well, this week you're in luck because there's only good news. Or is uh, yeah, so, so what, what are we covering in the, um, in the, in the news this week? Patrick? So our main stories this week are going to be um, Jeremy Corbyn, after 19 days of suspension, has been allowed back into the Labour Party after the anti-Semitism row. Denmark begins a roadmap on mandatory COVID vaccination. Will this be a road model for other countries, particularly the UK? And Trump fires the head of US cybersecurity for saying that the election was fair. Oh, God, imagine him disagreeing with him. Incredible. Yeah. <laughs> Who would have thought? Now, uh, I believe this week you're doing the source review. So what have you got for us this week, Lisa? Well, I noticed over the last couple of weeks, we've tended to review sources that we are pretty know that we like or will come up with a good con- a conclusion that we're in favour of. So I thought for a little bit of a challenge for us, I'd look at one that I'd pretty sure that both of us aren't fans of just to understand why it's so popular so i'm looking at the sun oh my favorite i read it every morning (laughs) no (laughs) well um i often walk past it in disgust so um anyway i wanted to explore why i do that so let me start from the beginning the sun is a tabloid newspaper uh as a broadsheet it was founded in 1964 as a successor to the daily herald and became a tabloid in 1969 after it was purchased by its current owner news corp um newspapers division of news uk itself a wholly owned subsidiary of Rupert murdoch's news corp since the sun on sunday was launched in february 2012 the paper has been a seven-day operation the sun previously has the largest circulation of any newspaper in the united kingdom and um, but it was overtaken by the rival metro in in march 2018 Um, To put it in perspective on how big the reach is in terms of a main source, um, in February 2020, the average daily circulation was 1.2 million. Um, Around the same time, the Times had an average daily circulation of of only uh, 417,298. The Guardian had a daily circulation of 110,000. Uh, and the New York Times has a, a daily circulation of about half a million. Uh, yes, we did say the Metro is slightly more, but I think that's really important for us to understand how, you know, despite what it reports, it is reaching um, a f- a far, far more people than a lot of the other um, sources that we've been preferencing, we've been reviewing. Uh, the Sun Before, Before Murdoch launched with 3.2 million as a print run. Um, because it was really confident it was going to be um, taken up, but only within weeks it went down to 1.2 million. Um, the paper was intended to be a readership of social radicals uh, to the Herald's political radicals. That ran. That was one of the reasons why some of the sources I read this morning said it ran at a loss and it made way for, by 1969, um, Murdoch to step in and um, to... And, it, and this was going to be one of his first forays into the British... Um, media. He assured the IPC that he would publish a straightforward, honest newspaper, which would continue to support Labor. 
Under the pressure from new unions, rejected Maxwell's offer and Murdoch bought the paper for 800000 to be paid in instalments. He later remarked in an interview, he's constantly amazed at the ease in which he entered British newspapers. The first editor that Murdoch um, uh, uh, put into place at The Sun uh, had to recruit 125 reporters very quickly, which were mostly selected for availability rather than ability. They were uh, about a quarter of what the Mirror then employed and Murdoch had to draft in staff on loan from his Australian newspapers. Murdoch immediately relaunched the Sun as a tabloid and ran it as a sister paper to the News of the World. Uh, the Sun used the same printing presses and the two papers were managed together at senior executive levels. The tabloid Sun was first published and on the 17th of November 1969 as a front page headlined a horse dope sensation as an exclusive. The Sun is also known for its paid three model. Uh, which has been a bit of a sex education for some of my friends. The first topless model on page three appeared on 17th of November 1970, and she was tagged as a birthday suit girl to mark the first anniversary of the sun. Um, a topless page three model gradually became a regular fixture and with an increasing risk poses, the sun defended uh, page three for more than 40 years um, with with then editor Dominic Moran telling the Levinson Inquiry in press standards in February 2012 that Page 3 was, no, was an innocuous British institution regarded with affection and tolerance. Um, mark the feature of the 40th anniversary, feminist Jermaine Greer wrote an article in The Sun on the 18th of November 2010, published under the headline, if I ask my odd job man what he gets out of Page 3, he, he tells me simply, it cheers me up. So in the on 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 August um, two thousand eighteen, the sorry August two thousand and thirteen, the Irish Sun ended the practice of featuring topless models on page three. The main newspaper was reported to follow in two thousand fifteen with the addition of the of sixteenth of January supposedly the last to cut uh, to carry such photographs after a report in Times made such assertion. After substantial coverage in the media about the alleged change, page three returned to its usual format on the 22nd of January, 2015. Despite the industrial relations of the 1970s, the so-called um, Spanish practices of the print unions, the Sun was very profitable, enabling Murdoch to expand his operations to the United States from 1973. It is rumored that this is what um, encouraged his overt political backing. And uh, the first, uh, when he first took over the Sun, he remained nominally Labor supporting. And then the headlines uh, did did encourage a Thatcher leadership. And then consequently, after after the Thatcher years, he quite overtly backed Tony Blair, which is um, which is which is one of the reasons why he was you know he had such a, a landslide coming into politics. Uh, since since he backed Tony Blair, it seems like the Sun has has been quite consistent in backing the Conservatives. Murdoch's response to criticism, he um, you know over the years there's been a lot of criticism going towards the Sun as a tabloid newspaper. He's um, he's he often says to the critics that they are snobs who want to impose their tastes on everyone else. Mackenzie claimed that the same critics were the people who, if they ever had a popular idea, would have to go and lie down in a dark room for half an hour. Both have pointed to the huge commercial success of The Sun during that period and its establishment as Britain's top-selling newspaper, claiming that they are giving the public what they want. 
So for me, well, I mean, Patrick, before I give my conclusion, um, what are your thoughts on The Sun? Well, listen, I mean, to be very honest, I've never I've never read The Sun. I mean, I read it, I think, once at school when a friend got it for a page three thing. Um, and that, that was the only time I actually ever saw a copy of The Sun. We used to study it a lot in politics class. And of course, I know about the influence of The Sun. And, you know, I think for Murdoch, as you discussed quite rightly, it was an enormous launching pad in the UK in terms of influence. And he's used it very, very, very well. Um, the early days of being, you know, a very successful tabloid newspaper, it allowed him to get a huge amount of influence when Margaret Thatcher was, you know, on the cusp of becoming Tory leader in 79, his endorsement of her. I'd argue its its influence was colossal for New Labour, as you also quite rightly pointed out, Tony Blair doesn't really exist without the support he got from Rupert Murdoch. And, and you know, it's really his Faustian pact. Uh, Tony Blair's with Murdoch has to do with the influence of the sun. Um, its headlines, you know, are very famous. It's the sun, what won it? And, you know, will the last person uh, leave Britain, turn the lights off, you know, when it uh, backed Major over a Kinnock in 92? So it's had, it's had a tremendous influence. I think it's also interesting because it's partly the hypocrisy that surrounds Rupert Murdoch. Let's never forget that Rupert Murdoch is a newspaper heir, comes from a, a well-off family himself, and also was an Oxford graduate. And I think what he's understood is, is which he's done with Fox News and most of his media, I wouldn't say the time so much, but, but a lot of his other media, he's, he's understood that you pit the snobs, you know, versus the working man. And the, the sun is that reflection of it. And it allowed him also to, to be able to buy the, the most influential establishment newspaper in the UK, The Times, which is a very different newspaper from The Sun. So, you know, it's not a newspaper I'd have much interest in reading because I don't think it's very high quality. I think it, it suits an agenda. But, you know, it would be completely snobbish and wrong to not give it the influence which it's had in, in British life, which has been colossal over time. I think, yeah, I agree. I, that, that's why I, I started my source review with the kind of numbers that The Sun reaches compared to other newspapers in the UK, because regardless of the kind of quality of journalism and the deliberate cost cuts that have been made that have obviously impacted what we're reading and also the, um, the the very blatant agenda that Murdoch has behind what he's um, what he's what he's what he's trying to win over, we cannot deny its influence. And um, and I think that's and I think that's been a very like very um, uh, not capitalist but very a money making strategy that's done very well for him and it's basically set up his career in America. Oh incredibly well and you know also let's not forget Murdoch isn't a US citizen um, and yes you're absolutely right it was a way you know the gloom of 70s Britain in the economic downturn he went to America and made his fortune but yes you're right newspaper circulation figures though it shouldn't be surprising to be honest um, most newspapers including the New York Times and and most broadsheets um, as they're typically called have low circulation compared to a tabloid and to be honest, news, there's only one country in the world which has really high newspaper circulation figures, and that's Japan, where, for example, newspaper circulations can be as high as 10 million. That is a complete rarity. In the US, I, I believe the most popular newspaper is USA Today, which barely hits above a million and a bit. Or Sorry, it could be a little bit more, but it's still a tiny figure compared to the overall US population. They're just very small newspaper readership with digital circulation and etc now websites for example the new york times does get quite a lot of website traffic so that has to be borne in mind when we compare circulation but of, of course tabloids in the uk historically including the daily mail the sun have always been 
the the great leaders in circulation um broadsheets have never been tremendous leaders in circulation ever so so it was very clever financially for him it gave him a launch pad to buy establishment newspapers it allowed him to go to america buy a tabloid over there and also to build up you know the only really successful tabloid in america the new york post which is an americanized version in many ways of the sun yeah absolutely i i'm going to be really interested to see um how uh, tabloid like the sun goes in the future. I gave a lecture to 18 to 25 year olds yesterday and they had a very high level of intellect and uh, cynicism and were keeping me on my feet. So the romantic immediately would like to hope that that encourages um, thicker journalism or more or, or that becoming more popular, hopefully, because that would work for me as well um, in my own personal bias. But um, I don't know how those those kind of publications are going to be consumed in the future. I think there will always be a place for them, but I'm hoping that because we live in a world now where people are a lot more cynical about the media that they're getting, that hopefully that will temper the kind of quality of journalism that we get. You know, well, that's that's what I'm hoping anyway. Well, I, I think that's that's a very interesting conversation, and it's one I'm I'm slightly more cynical about it. Just as as we've said, you know, because a newspaper is not a tabloid doesn't mean it does good journalism, New York Times, prime example. Um, and I think we'll talk a little bit about that when we come to a later story in today's podcast. But I, I also think you have to worry, you know, there are very new sources, which are in different domains, like OAN, uh, the new right wing uh, networks in America, which are getting quite a bit of audience soon will have that same t- type of almost tabloid like TV in the UK with GBTV. And I, I think we'll have to see. Uh, the cynic in me says that just because it's not the sun, we're not necessarily moving on to better news sources. We're just moving on to more fragmented news sources that suit more and more fragmented audiences with the internet. Yeah, okay. No, that's a good point. So my conclusion about the sun is it's a cost-effective uh, uh, paper. And when you don't invest in quality, you get quite thin journalism, but very powerful journalism too. It seems to be one of the most blatant examples of how the media can really influence popular opinion. Um, it's not my cup of tea, but it's an influence that shouldn't be sneezed at. So on to the news. So UK politics, we've had some really interesting things happen over the last couple of days. Yes, there are a lot of stories going on in the UK at the moment. So the biggest one politically is, of course, Jeremy Corbyn's suspension has been lifted after 19 days. Um, So for those of you who've been following the story who haven't, uh, Jeremy Corbyn, the former leader of the Labour Party, um, was suspended because of um, anti-Semitism by the NEC. So what's really interesting about that is a lot of people saw that as a big positive and a huge move by Keir Starmer in his bid to take the Labour Party back to the centre. Now, Keir Starmer, as he's pointed out, is not in charge of the decision for suspension or not. And he actually tweeted out this morning that he was quite unhappy with the decision. And he made sure to mention that he was very much against anti-Semitism. Jeremy Corbyn, during his suspension, was, of course, photographed with a man on a beach holding an anti-Semitic sign. And it's caused the Labour Party a tremendous amount of problems. So it's really interesting. It, It just means basically that Corbyn's control over the Labour Party is not over. Uh, Jeremy Corbyn spent a huge amount of time transforming the Labour Party away from the Blair and Brown years to what he saw as his vision of a more left-wing hierarchy and and dominant uh, structure, power structure in the party. And it's going to be a really, really interesting story to follow to see whether Keir Starmer will be able to win this battle against the Corbynites. Absolutely. So, where where does Keir Starmer sit um, compared to Corbyn in terms of um, in terms of 
priorities within the Labour Party. Oh, well, he's much more to the centre. Uh, one of the, the, the big differences between him and, and Jeremy Corbyn is, is he really is harking back more to the new Labour era. But the problem is the difference is that Tony Blair, because of John Smith, who had been the leader before, had already had a slightly easier path to climb to bring the Labour Party close to the centre. It had already gone in the 90s with Kinnock and Smith. Whereas the difference is that Jeremy Corbyn has really changed the Labour Party completely. And he's put in, you know, people, if you're being uncharitable, you could argue they're Corbyn's sort of minions, all all over the Labour Party. And now whether Keir Starmer will be able to bring the party slightly more to the centre will be very, very complicated for him. And also the charge of anti-Semitism is highly serious because, to be honest, the Labour Party actually, its response has been catastrophic and Jeremy Corbyn's response has been catastrophic. And whether this will go on to taint Keir Starmer is something he's very afraid of. So he's having to play a very difficult game at the moment. He sees an opportunity. He thinks Boris Johnson is a bit weak. Um, now that Jeremy, uh, Boris Johnson, forgive me, is, is trying to rejig the Tory party, he's just gotten rid of Dominic Cummings, which is another big story in UK politics. Uh, will Keir Starmer be able to do this? Um, so this is going to be an ongoing story, but it's a really interesting development when Keir Starmer thought uh, he put, potentially got that thorn out of his side. Well, he hasn't. Um, yeah, and it's really in, in, interesting that even though Corbyn was, um, you know, hasn't been the, lab, the leader of the Labor Party since the election, he still make it's still it's still making a lot of noise. He still has a lot of influence. Oh, absolutely. But in the same way that Margaret Thatcher had influence uh, to this day, long after her departure in 1990, a good, a really good political leader. Uh, or a really serious one which can change the party and their image. And it's the same discussion we're having with Donald Trump in America is what will the Republican Party look like after Donald Trump? And it could be a completely different, difficult, uh, different, forgive me, political party. And this is what we're seeing with Jeremy Corbyn's Labour. He's absolutely molded it into his image. A lot of people think that's an unelectable Labour Party. So how will Keir Starmer be able to to change the image of the party? And he's already really trying. He's done big campaigns. He's done big publicity campaigns on YouTube and etc. Trying to shift the focus onto his vision of the Labour Party. But whether he'll be able to win that battle might decide the future of Keir Starmer. Mm, interesting. So there's another headline that you've brought to our attention. Suzanne Moore, uh, winner of the Orwell Prize in 2019, forced out of The Guardian for calling women a biological classification, not a feeling. Yes. Now, this is another really interesting story. And, you know, this is another one that we talk about. We talk about the news a lot. This particular one is very interesting because Suzanne Moore is considered one of the top journalists at The Guardian, very highly respected, very popular. The Orwell Prize is a very serious prize, which she won last year. And she wrote an article basically discussing what she saw about the women's movement and it was very much pro the women's movement and what she saw but she did say that she felt very strongly that being a woman was not just a matter of feeling it it was a matter of a biological classification that there is such a thing biologically as a woman and she basically was kicked out by the members of the guardian so about 300 of the young journalists at the guardian forced her out And she tweeted, she said, I will miss some of my colleagues at The Guardian as she left. Um, She was very angry and upset. And Alex Massey in The Spectator wrote a very good article, which he said, The Guardian, like The New York Times, two of the bastions of the liberal newspaper establishment, no longer support many of their top journalists. Um, When Barry Weiss had to leave and quite a few other female journalists have had to leave The New York Times and other male journalists, by the way, and quite a few journalists seem to be forced out at The Guardian. And it's very worrying because, for example, another female journalist, journalist said that she felt very lucky to be at the Times because she'd written pretty much the same thing as Suzanne Moore. But the Times had backed her and said, 
we stand by her no matter what people feel about it, whereas The Guardian hasn't. The Guardian really turned on Suzanne Moore. And there seems to be an evergreen illiberal culture going on at the liberal newspapers. And it's a really interesting um, development. And Suzanne Moore is, is incredibly disappointed. I think it won't be the last we'll hear from her about this. But it's also showing the change in cultures on the left and in left-wing newspapers. I think I think we've noticed. Well, I've noticed a pattern this year, and we've talked about it a little bit with uh, the BBC having those kind of challenges. Um, I've worked at the Guardian. I'm not surprised <laughs> that that's happened as well. But I think those kind of um, that kind of infighting on that site, that ideology, has made room for what's being launched early next year, which is News UK and GB News, uh, because there's a bit of a backlash of people seeing what's going on, and then there's. Um, and then there's a need for the, the more the more right leaning um, media coverage, um, which you know, which is which which you know, despite my own biases, these these are the things that you know. This is this is the way. This is what happens when you know these kind of things happen on the left. Well, I think I think that's a great point, Lisa, and also one I, I very much agree with because I think in America, for example, there's a lesson that isn't being learned. A lot of people are celebrating Biden's victory. But at the same time, there you do hear questioning about why Donald Trump got almost 10 million more votes than he did last time, and people are going, how could it happen? But there is a definitely a very serious backlash to political correctness and to what's going on on the left. And you can't bury your head in the sand. As you say quite rightly, why is Nigel Farage coming back with a really successful lockdown, anti-lockdown party? Why are news sources for the right going like GBTV? Why are news sources in America like Blaze doing really well at the moment? It is because there is a big backlash to what people are feeling on the left. And a lot of the exit polling showed that even people who were slightly more dubious about Trump voted for him because they felt that the left, from their point of view, was really going into this civil war, which was brutalizing everyone. So it's terrifying a lot of more centrist voters away. And that's something people really have to be very careful about thinking. If you support the left, for example, it is something that I think much more thought should be given to. It's not just enough to say Donald Trump is a bad man. You have to see why 10 million more people voted for him. And there are things on the left that they have to really pay attention to. It's not just that simple to say that Biden's won, everything's going to be all right, because it's not the way it works out. Um, the great American historian of the left, Riff Perlstein, writes about this constantly. And he's always upset with the left. And he's very much a left-wing um, writer, you know, by American standards, he'd probably be called a socialist. But he says the left do it every single time. They fight amongst themselves and they terrify away voters when they go far, way too far. And then they blame the right, but they never look at themselves. And he criticizes the left all the time for it. And he very much wants to see the left win. But he says they do it every single time. They've done it every single time in the 20th century and they keep on doing it now. And, you know, you can almost see him pulling his hair out in despair. And I think this is a story that, again, is really interesting because of the wider implications of what it means. I agree. I also I think because democracies are, complete, are very, very dependent on the central vote. Um, so you have your left and your right, but um, but the bewilderment of the middle is is something that we have to watch <laughs> because of the way these because um, um, the because of the, the way the way these these behaviours are coming about. Um, otherwise, it's it, it's systems that don't serve us anymore. Yeah, I, I agree. And then um, so tell us. So there was another story I think which you'd given us, which is about agencies rebranding America. Oh look, I wanted to include this um, in in our in our collection of links for our our listeners because uh, Fast Company had, did a call out to all the top agencies in the US to on how they can actually get America on track again because globally it's suffered 
<laughs> as a it's not it's not the confident um, cultural leader it used to be. So there were some really interesting ways that um, that agencies were trying to get people excited about America, America again. So Patrick, I was hoping. Unfortunately, I only found it just moments before our um, our recording. But I'd love you to have a look at it because it'd be great to talk through. No, that. I did, I did, I did have a look at it. And again, I mean, it sort of always makes my my blood boil a bit because what America doesn't need is remarketing. America's had plenty of marketing um, over its history and it, you know, always emphasizes marketing. What America needs is a really deep look at, at the structure of the country and, and the establishment. You know, Biden's election and Kamala, as I say to everyone, is if, if you supported them and you wanted a different thing, it's like putting a Band-Aid on an amputee. Uh, there are enormous systemic problems going on in America, whether you're on the left or the right. And it's a really interesting conversation that never makes it into the media, but American uh, right-wing think tanks, even heritage and etc they're all talking about things that the media never talks about for example healthcare costs are spiraling out of control so whether you're for or against universal healthcare there's a massive health crisis going on in america in terms of expenditure and in terms of results i mean so it's great america can get a nice rebranding on a poster its uh, infant mortality rate is still lower than slovenia's uh you know so that they're, they're tremendous and the, we can go on and on about this but it's exactly the kind of fluff which really makes me despair and, and it always reminds me of the line from the great economy John Kenneth Galbraith, who was uh, President Kennedy's ambassador to India, who said, it's the great problem with the media. The media loves talking about sex and sports and entertainment because you don't have to do much thinking and you don't need much learning. Everybody knows a bit about sex. Everybody knows a bit about sports. They're really easy. But to talk about really difficult problems like economics, politics, philosophy, that takes, you know, education. It takes, you know, the willingness to learn, the willingness to study and to think. And it's really tough. And the media doesn't tend to cover it. And that's that's why this kind of thing always drives me absolutely crazy because marketing so what you don't need it you need to deal with much more serious things than marketing yeah, for america i, I agree i agree <laughs> so um so on to um our our covid weekly update denmark begins our work on roadmap for mandatory vaccination that's pretty promising listen it's very interesting it's a really good article and i recommend uh, for people to click through on it so yes denmark is very worried about the anti-vaccine movement also, they want their population to be completely protected against COVID. So what they're trying to do is with their constitution, they're trying to figure out a way to make the vaccine mandatory. Um, now, it's very much at the initial stages. There's a lot of constitutional experts who think that it won't be possible because of the different legal ramifications. Um, also, what's really interesting is Matt Hancock, for example, here in the UK, has mentioned that it's a potential role model. Again, probably very difficult. Now, you come from a country, Australia, where, you know, sort of mandatory voting and mandatory things and, and more of a nanny state government are acceptable. But it's true that it might be a very difficult um, thing to pass on. I also thought because of the story that we've discussed and uh, the link that you've included is there a lot of NHS staff, for example, were found to have had face groups where they were posting lots of anti-vaccine. And, you know, which I think is incredibly worrying if you work for the NHS um, their thinking and their reasoning and also the links they were posting and the kind of articles you were posting were incredibly worrying coming from, from our health service. Yeah, I know. I, 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 I agree. I was really grateful that you sent that to me during the week. I, um, From my limited understanding with vaccinations, I've been told that, you know, usually um, like flu vaccinations or other ones that are needing to deliver at the level that we need this COVID one to get tested for 10 years. And so the concern from a scientific factor is the fact that this is all being fast-tracked um but 
um, you know, it's and so that's where the trepidation I've heard from from people that work in the in the medical sector. So that's the so reading that um that article about anti vaxxers that's where I thought maybe their concerns were. No, unfortunately, um, no. That that's a concern I would share. For example, I'm I'm a believe I'm a tremendous believer in vaccinations, as I've said on this show before. Um, I think vaccinations are one of the greatest inventions in all of human history, and thank God for them. Um, no, in this particular case, it wasn't the worry, which is a worry I share, of course, when vaccinations are, are speed, um, brought out with tremendous speed and, and, you know, they're not completely tested and etc. There can be problems and absolutely it's something to be careful of. In this case, it was NHS staff posting articles by Wakefield and other things which were completely false and erroneous and nothing to do with the early release of the vaccination, but to do with much more serious um, anti-vaccine things. Right. OK, interesting. Um, look, I think, yeah, it's, it's, I think, I think it's one of the, yeah, cause we're all still working it out as it comes along, aren't we? Mm-hmm. And, and it's, um, and I guess one of the benefits of all of us going through it together is we're seeing how different countries are responding and what's working and what's not. Um, I'm really looking forward. There's actually, they've started trialing, uh, uh, planes, uh, it's called a COVID free plane that goes between America and the UK where you get tested for COVID before you get on the flight to make sure you don't have it, and then you get tested when you arri- and when you arrive. And I think more of those kind of systems coming into play are going to just help us get back on our feet again. Yes, and listen, let's see how this progresses um, as everything with COVID. Um, now to move on to another story, there was one final story because it's slightly breaking news to do with the American election which is that Donald Trump has fired the head of U.S. cybersecurity for saying that the election was fair. I don't know if you saw this story, Lisa, and what your thoughts are. Um, oh, look. <laughs> if, it's, if it's, you know, it's, it's going to ruin his optics. So, of course, he should have fired the head of U.S. cybersecurity for saying it was fair. <laughs> no, it's very much in character, but... Um, uh, listen, I, I don't think it's completely unexpected, um, but it does lead into a more serious subject. And I posted a link to a very good article in The Times about this. And this is the story I mentioned last week, which worries me the most about the final months of Donald Trump, which is also starting to worry a lot of Republicans. Is Donald Trump has quite a bucket list before he goes. Now, it's a really serious story because Donald Trump has threatened to, to bomb Iran's nuclear sites. And also he's um, tried to designate the Houthi rebels in Yemen as a terrorist group. Now, this is a big hypocritical story that concerns all of us because Britain and America's behavior has been disgraceful when it comes to Yemen anyway, long before Donald Trump. Uh, This goes back to Obama um, with his drone strikes in Yemen. But it has to do with the influence that we're currently giving to the Saudis and the Gulf states versus Iran. And in this particular case, if Donald Trump were to designate the Houthis as a rebel state, as a terrorist organization, forgive me, it would send the country most likely into a famine. Now, it's already suffering from the worst cholera outbreak in the world, as if that's not enough. Uh, Now, to send the country into a famine would be quite extraordinary, given that we've been giving weapons and money to the Saudis, who've quite frankly managed one of the most mismanaged wars in modern history, uh, bombing school buses and hospitals throughout Yemen using American and British weaponry. So it's it's really quite a disgusting story all round, which never gets nearly enough press. Uh, what's going on in Yemen is an absolute disgrace and one which we bear in the West a huge responsibility for, in particular in the UK and America. Um, but also, I think people should be very worried about what 
he's achieving to do because he's basically trying to block through the influence of the Israelis and the Saudis and the Qataris in particular Iran's influence and by doing that he is trying to pass some of the largest arms deals ever done to a country which you know as I've said before where citizens were responsible for 9-11 and where Wahhabism and a very strong strain of anti-Western Islam, fundamentalist Islam goes through. And so it's a really important story for people because Donald Trump can actually cause and have a huge amount of effect on world politics before he goes, and in particular if he manages to do this before he leaves. I mean, we saw the opposite. Well, we saw we saw Obama's version of that before he left um, with all the legislation and what he was trying to do before Trump came in as well. So we have, you know, it's very typical for people to do this, but I guess the level and the the um, and his his methodology of of um, almost carpet bombing, you know, is quite scary. And um, I've been lucky enough to be working on a project with some um, doctors without borders in Yemen, and I couldn't agree with you more. It's um, absolutely horrendous what's going on over there, and it's quite frightful how much we don't know what's going on. Only just in the last month they've um, they, they've let media back into Yemen, um, and we're starting to understand a little bit more. Um, but actually, from a media perspective, talking to some of my colleagues um, in mainstream media and trying to um get this story out there it's 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 they you know you get into a conversation about oh you know pick pick the war pick what's going on and it's quite it's quite awful so hopefully um yeah hopefully some more attention gets brought into Yemen sometime and then hopefully we can stop um Trump um you know making it worse no and absolutely it's not just an anti-Trump thing as you were quite rightly pointing out it very much has to do with Obama as well and with previous presidencies Going back a long time, I mean, Obama, when it came to the military, was, by European standards, a highly centre-right president. I mean, he bombed more than, you know, uh, I think almost both presidents combined the amount of drone attacks that he sent into Yemen and to other countries. I mean, he was a highly military president, and he deserves an enormous amount of criticism for the way he left office, certainly in terms of the military. What's quite interesting in Trump, on the opposite flip side argument, is that Trump is actually trying to draw down the troops uh, from Afghanistan and Iraq. And now we're coming into almost the 20th year of war between, uh, of America being involved in a war in Afghanistan, which is incredible. That's two decades that America has been fighting in Afghanistan with no end in sight. And Donald Trump is trying to bring it down. And for the first time in a while, Mitch McConnell's, you know, dared to say something against Trump and saying he thinks should, troops should leave, which is funny because, you know, a lot of people on the left would be more in agreement with what Donald Trump is trying to do in Iraq and, and Afghanistan, trying to get the troops out and trying to end those wars. So it's, you know, that that very odd mix of politics and foreign policy that Donald Trump can bring. Mm, yeah, absolutely. So now on to um, some more positive news. Uh, the, the, there's some exciting movements going on with the UK Green Movement, isn't there, Patrick? Yes, 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 yes. We brought this story to you, I remember, a few weeks ago as well. And, and Boris Johnson has just gone into more plans about the Green Industrial Revolution. Uh, which a lot of environmental groups are excited about. Uh, A lot of other people feel that not enough is done or that it's not realistic at all. But it's still really interesting that he's talking about it very seriously and, and let's see where it goes. I think it's very, very interesting in terms of wanting to get wind power, in terms of getting job creation in the green energy sector. Rishi Sunak has also come out with quite a, pr- a proposal which a lot of people think is quite bonkers but to charge all motorists per mile that they drive uh, which I don't even know is how it's feasible um, but but it was also quite an interesting statement from a Tory government which again goes to show the difference between you know say British politics and American politics you know this is what a right-wing British 
government is doing on the environment compared to, you know, the Trump administration trying to drill as much of the Arctic as possible before he leaves office. I was talking to my dad um, on Sunday and he was saying to me that the Conservative government here is doing some of the most progressive work in environmental legislation um, currently. And he's not, uh, he doesn't, he doesn't give compliments to, to Conservatives very often. So I thought that was definitely worth noting. And also the fact that there's 250,000 jobs um, estimated with the 10 point plan that Boris Johnson announced yesterday, I think is quite, is quite exciting. Yeah, it's very exciting. I mean, listen, I, I hope I hope it goes somewhere, and and I hope they they can work out a really good green deal. But I think it's fantastic. But again, it you know it shows you know British politics are far to the left in European politics in general, of what's going on in America. So so it'd be really interesting when Biden comes in, uh, what what will be able to be, do? You know, the the thing is he'll probably be quite hampered in terms of what he can actually do. But it'll be interesting for the international community, definitely. But it's good news Absolutely. for the UK. Yeah, and, and, and just, just before we go on to our next section, as you pointed out an interesting article about Australia and Japan are warned by China to be careful over their new defence pact. Yes, yeah, so so Australia and Japan have, are signing a new defence pact and, you know, Beijing has been very unhappy and they've they've warned basically Australia and Japan to be very, very careful um, how they go about and they were saying that they found this very confrontational. So again, it has to do with this ongoing story in the Pacific of the realignment of power uh, with a rising China and what can be done to counter it and what Australia and Japan in particular, who are the two other major powers in the region, are doing. And so it was really interesting to see Scott Morrison um, and Tokyo basically doing this deal and and to see how, how effective it will be in countering rising Chinese power and ambitions in the region. Wow, watch this space. So now onto our time capsule. I wanted to bring a um, a initiative that's been started in Portland um, to from uh, which it's just just kicked off, but I think it's a really a progressive one to look at for our future. It's called Impact Justice, and it was um, Impact Justice by the Homecoming Project, which is an organisation founded to find better solutions to criminal justice reform, would act as a matchmaker between Oakland residents with an extra bedroom to rent and people living leaving prison who need a place to stay. It, it wasn't unlike Airbnb. In the two years, they've placed 27 participants across the county, spending roughly 10000 to secure a six-month stay for each participant, meaning rent paid directly to their hosts alongside case management and, and training for hosts. I think this is really quite progressive. Um, I've, I live near a halfway house here in Kilburn and it just recently got shut down. And I must admit, you know, with the kind of people that were out the front, I was a bit, you know, nervous always walking past it. But I, I like when... Um, when people are trying these new integrations to help work in processes to make justice systems work better. Yes, absolutely. I mean, prison reform is incredibly necessary, particularly in America, where they lock up more of their own people than any other country in the world. Um, but, but yes, I, I think they're, they're really interesting. Um, it'll be very, it'll be very interesting to see now that there are big movements towards prison reform, also because of the strength of BLM and and other black movements in America. The, the highest population by far in America of incarcerated people are, of course, uh, black Americans. So so it's really interesting to see what's going on. I know there was a bit of a setback in Oregon as well, when I believe the mayor of Portland, uh, who had acted to defund the police by $18 million, then called the police to protect her when she wasn't happy with her Uber ride. And this has caused a lot of, you know, mirth in America because of hypocrisy. Um, wow. so, so, you know, there are still problems and there are going to be quite a few hiccups along the way. 
but um, one step at a time <laughs> one step at a time but I, I do agree it's an encouraging story I'm glad to hear it um, so what are you bringing from the past from the past I'm bringing in a really interesting story one which I think almost no one knows about I only learned it fairly recently is the story of a young man called Matthias Rust um, so Matthias Rust was a German uh, 18 year old and he decided in 1987 to fly a small airplane at Cessna from Helsinki to Moscow now, what's incredible about this story is that he was tracked by the whole of the Soviet air defense, and this is meant to be at the height of the Soviet Union, when the CIA had said the Soviet Union airspace was impenetrable, and he managed to fly all the way from Finland to Moscow, and he landed on the Bolshoi Bridge near Red Square in Moscow at the height of the Soviet Union, and he wasn't shot down because a lot of the Soviet um, air controller believed he was a friendly aircraft, you know, possibly a Russian aircraft, and he later said that he'd wanted, his ambition had been to create an imaginary bridge between the West and the East in order to reduce tensions between the two sides during the Cold War. Now, his flight actually has enormous historical re repercussions because at the time, Gorbachev was, of course, trying to reform the country and he was quite blocked by the military. And what it allowed, it allowed Gorbachev to do the largest purge of Soviet military officials since Stalin's purges. And he managed to replace the head of the, the Minister of Defense, the Air Chief Marshals, hundreds of the most influential Soviet military leaders because of their failings to block this airplane from flying in. And the CIA later said that it had been one of the most remarkable things they'd ever seen because it had shown that, you know, the Soviet airspace was in fact quite the opposite to being impenetrable. It was almost a bit of a joke. And wow. um, basically, Gorbachev later credited this as being one of the most important things to have happened to allow him to have reformed the Soviet Union wow. peacefully. And all of this because of an 18-year-old flying. And what I always find fascinating is, uh, in America, the Americans always credit Reagan for bringing down the Soviet Union, which I've always thought historically is ridiculous if you study it. But that's another conversation. But in this particular case, actually, the flight of an 18-year-old German boy really did actually help bring about the end of the Soviet Empire, which is a colossal thing to have done. Uh, now, Rust was imprisoned for four years. He was later pardoned. Uh, by a very influential um, uh, Russian minister after 14 months. And he's had this really odd life afterwards. He, he's been arrested for stabbing a girlfriend, I think, in, in the early 90s, went to prison, then got out, then went to India and, and became the head of a sort of Hindu um, Krishna group and then came back and then apparently is working as a trader in a bank. So he's had this really, really odd life. And then he was interviewed in these big interviews in Germany and in the Western press a few years ago. And these interviews are available online. But anyway, I think it's one of the most remarkable unknown stories um, about history in the modern era. Absolutely. Wow. Thank you for bringing that to us. My pleasure. So, so shot of culture. What? Oh, you've got a good one this week. Tell us. <laughs> well, listen, I wanted to bring one of my favorite movies of all time, which has just come on Netflix, uh, which is Francis Ford Coppola's Dracula. So Coppola is the great director of The Godfather Apocalypse Now. And at a very low point in his career, when he'd had a lot of uh, busts and he desperately needed to make some money uh, to stave off bankruptcy, he decided to adapt um, Bram Stoker's Dracula. And in my opinion, he made a movie which I think is a masterpiece. A lot of people think is either a near masterpiece or at least one of the best movies of the 90s and it stars Gary Oldman in his first really big starring role as Dracula and it's got an incredible supporting cast Winona Ryder Anthony Hopkins you know beautiful Sadie Frost Keanu Reeves among many others uh, it also has one of the greatest movie store, uh, scores um, of the 90s composed by the Polish composer Wojtek Kilar uh, which was used in every single movie trailer throughout the 90s and early 2000s um, I think it's it's fantastic for several reasons 
visually, it's absolutely beautiful. Um, Coppola famously fired all of the visual effects team because they wanted to use computer uh, CGI, and he refused. He only wanted to use in-camera old-fashioned effects, and it makes the movie absolutely stunning because he used all these incredible techniques. Gary Oldman is probably, in my opinion, the definitive Dracula. Um, Anthony Hopkins just chews the scenery. They're, all the actors are fantastic. Keanu Reeves is a bit more controversial in his performance, so we say many people think it's one of the worst performances ever, but it's quite entertaining to watch now, watching Keanu Reeves trying to play a sophisticated English gentleman. Um, but, but anyway, I highly recommend it for those of you who haven't seen it. It's, I think it's a masterpiece. I think it's one of Coppola's greatest movies alongside The Godfather and Apocalypse Now in the Conversation and really, really worth watching. He's a wonderful filmmaker, Francis Ford Coppola. He's a, he's a genius at his best, agree. yeah. Yeah. So I'm my mine is a series, but it's by an Oscar winner as well, Steve McQueen, uh, who is a beautiful filmmaker. And he launched a series called um, Small Acts, which are his love letters to black resilience in, and triumph in the London West Indian community. It's really special to watch. It's very well thought through. It's quite original. I haven't seen anything like it. And the actors, the acting is really, really special. So I absolutely recommend it. You can see it on BBC iPlayer. And I will try and find links for our um, our listeners in Australia to see where they can watch it too. I'd love to watch. I, I think I agree with you. I think Steve McQueen is actually one of the best young directors alive. I'm a young director. He's been around for a while now. But I think he's an extraordinary director. Um, hunger and Shame. I think are two of the best movies I've I've seen in the last sort of 15 years. I think they're fantastic. He's also a very great artist. That's how he got his start. He was an artist and a Turner Prize uh, winning artist and still does these incredible photographic projects. And uh, I've heard from other people that Small Axe is great, but he's a super director and I think it's a great story. I'm so glad he's done it and can't wait to watch it. Yeah, me too. Uh, well, uh, yeah, sorry. Well, the first episode's great. Can't wait to see the others. So thank you, everyone, for listening to Us Week of Intellect. I'm Lisa Gray. And I'm Patrick DeButler. See you next week. See you next week.